Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of Genesis, entitled The Origin of Reason. Now we're going to be looking at something that seems to have happened very rapidly. The snake, the fruit, Eve falls for the lie, she approaches Adam, and it was all over. Just a moment in time, and all of history is turned on a dime. God has made everything good. Everything was very good. The universe was in order. There was a discipline to creation. Everything was perfect. Everything is working smoothly, but suddenly, this serpent shows up and everything turns sour in an instant. A suggestion is made. God is lying to you. He's holding back on you. Eve stops and she listens. The serpent hadn't even been mentioned up until this moment. Not even a hint of his lurking around the garden was known. Far from being good, this serpent is evil, planting sedition and doubt, bringing dissension and division and confusion. This is Satan. But how did he get here? Did God create Satan as well? Did he create evil? God had created everything up to this point. How did evil appear then? This is a real question that has not been answered successfully. I know it happened. Evil did appear. It's obvious. We read of it. It obviously was possible, and the best answer we can arrive at is strictly conjecture. Some want to argue that God created evil, and they refer to Isaiah 45 verse 7 in the King James Version of the Bible. On the surface, you would scratch your head and wonder. However, study this and you'll quickly see that the evil mentioned in this particular passage is more like a calamity, a tornado, a shear wind, a tsunami, a volcanic eruption of some sort, some kind of disaster. God does these things, he plans these things, and he uses them for his glory. What he has to say about Satan, or the serpent, he says in Ezekiel 28, 12-15, he says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald. Your setting and mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Now, as we begin to gather information regarding the original state of Satan, and we get a picture of what was precipitated in his fall, he was the wisest of all of God's creatures. He was blameless, the model of perfection, full of wisdom. He used his wisdom to occupy the highest post in the administration of the universe. He was the guardian cherub. He was created to reflect God's glory and to uphold it. He was similar to being God's prime minister. He was to speak for God, manage the universe in God's name, answering to God only. He was to direct the worship and the obedience of all created beings, pointing them back to God. This was the highest position an angel could hold, save the place of God himself. But don't forget, he was indeed a created being. He was not the creator. He did not help create. He was created and appointed. He was highly placed, but he was not the highest. Something happened. He was blameless until one day, in one moment, wickedness was found within him. Pride. In that instance, he fell from heaven. He was cut down to the ground. He became the arch enemy of God. This is our enemy, and he is nothing to dismiss or to laugh about. We want to smile and say he has a red suit on with a long tail and a pointy fork. 
We say the devil made me do it with a smile. Yet our adversary is ready to devour us. He's ready to destroy us, to mock us and to ridicule us and to bring us to a place of shame. But Christian, whoever's listening to this, know this. Always, always, always rest in this. The fact is, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. These things are facts. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us, is what Martin Luther held to. God's truth keeps us, and God will always uphold us. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul said this in his letter to the Ephesians. In his book, The Art of War, Sun Tzu said, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. However, if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. We need to know our enemy. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was advising these Christians there to forgive one another due to the fact that Satan seeks constantly to entrap us with lies and to ruin our reputations and to cause us to fight. He seeks to bring disharmony and confusion. He wants to gain a foothold in our hearts and our minds. But Paul says this, look, we're not ignorant of his devices. Now here we're considering Satan, what he's like, but we're not doing this in order to make things mystical or fantastic, but to gain an understanding of who he is and what he's like. What you see here in Genesis is what you will discover over and over throughout Scripture. Now, as he worked to deceive Eve, he's going to work to deceive you and me as well. Eve was no simple-minded, uneducated woman. She was the most brilliant woman to walk on the face of the earth. Adam was the smartest man ever to walk on the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ. But both fell, and they fell hard. Satan is insatiably egotistical and extremely ambitious. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but at times they can be very irritating and frustrating to be around. Satan wants to be worshipped by all of mankind. He wants to have the spotlight. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be like the Most High. This is what motivates him. And this is his lofty goal, though it's unrealistic. This is what he wants. In order to displace God with himself, he must have this position of ascendancy. He told Jesus he would give all the kingdoms of the world to him if he would just fall down and worship him. Now, that must have taken a huge ego if you stop and think about it. Satan knew exactly who Christ was. And he was going to give something to the self-sufficient God of all creation. If ever you read about men who formed the industrial backbone of our nation, you may be shocked by their incredible and their insatiable ambition. An unbridled desire for wealth and greatness consumed Rockefeller, Carnegie, Mellon, and others. Many applaud these things as tremendous character traits for leaders, leaders that direct other men. The facts reveal that they were ruthless men who would stop at nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, to get what they wanted. I agree there must be a drive with a leader in order to succeed. He must be driven and focused on his goals. Andrew Carnegie, however, took this one step further, and he was perhaps the greatest industrialist this nation ever produced. He rejected God and religion. He said in his autobiography, he said, 
Not only had I got rid of the theology and the supernatural ideas, but I had found the truth of evolution. John Dewey, who's known and revealed as the father of modern education, who had a tremendous influence on hundreds of millions of Americans through public education, stated clearly his belief system. He said there is no God and no soul. Hence, there are no needs for props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent absolutes. Teaching children to read is a great perversion and a high literacy rate breeds destructive individualism. The child must not go to school to develop individual talents, but rather to be prepared as units in an organic society. The change in the moral school atmosphere are not mere accidents. They are the necessities of the larger social evolution. You can read this in his book, The Unseen Hand, by Ralph Epperson. It's on page 298. We tend to elevate and deify our heroes. Often we do this by ignoring the facts. These particular men literally ruined weaker men and crushed their competition without any remorse whatsoever. We would say they were sociopaths or even pathological in some senses. While no industrialist has ever done more damage to the nation than Rockefeller, Carnegie, Mellon, or Morgan combined, Dewey attacked the minds of the youth and his impact is still being felt today. While I do not believe Satan ever smiles, nor can he know happiness, I do believe that he finds a great deal of satisfaction in watching weak and unsuspecting people fall to his wiles. And Dewey was well-placed, and his influence is well-known. These great men were nothing in comparison to the serpent, to Satan. Sure, they were titans in the American landscape. Nephilim, if you want to say that. Satan has some nice suits, by the way. He can dress for any occasion. He can appear as an angel of light, or he can appeal to the emotions of a hobo in the street. We're encouraged not to be ignorant of his devices. He is a liar. He brings confusion. He brings anxiety and depression. These things do not come from God. These things are the tools of the enemy. Satan said in Isaiah 14, I will. Five times he said that. He repeated it. He was the first rebellious voice that echoed through heaven. He was joined then by Adam and Eve, then Cain, then Lamech, then Nimrod, and more, and more, and more as time moved on. Remember, he brought a third of the angels that resided in heaven in the very presence of God. He brought them with him in his rebellion. What does that tell you? He was a master salesman. He was the salesman from hell. Not many say no to his sales pitch. He was very good. Mark Twain rightly stated, It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. Satan is a master at this. He will deceive and he will lie. He will suggest things. He will tempt. He will try to fool you into thinking that it was your good idea all along. He throws mud on your white garment and then he accuses you of being muddy. He's very charismatic and more than convincing. He's relentlessly determined and merciless in his pursuits. He obviously is not convinced of his inability to stand before God, and he believes that he truly deserves a place there. He's proud. Pride is the big one. And he's driven by his self-confidence and his lust for power and position. They're insatiable, and those who follow him reflect his desires and his traits. Most children reflect the attitude and characteristics of their parents, don't they? 
These are things we agree with, and these are things we come to understand as we look into the origin of reason. Thank you very much for joining us today, being with us in this study. Your participation is well appreciated, and I hope you receive something of benefit. Come back next week and be with us as we study again the origin of reason.